Well, welcome to what um, is a new channel for Gospel Conversations, which we've foreshadowed uh, in a recent email. And they, uh, we're going to call this channel uh, Breakfast with Jesus. And this channel will feature more frequent, perhaps weekly, uh, more informal podcasts that are, are based very much on my uh, morning conversations with my sweet wife Anne. Um, we have the luxury of being able to spend quite a bit of time in the mornings together uh, just going through the scriptures and we come across out of our, our discussion yields uh, really productive thoughts and there are too many of them to just package into the channel of monthly forums at Gospel Conversation. So um, we've decided to have this more informal um, channel, uh, probably a fair bit shorter, um, where we can share some of the nuggets we've, we've found. So um, the first one, well, at the moment we're reading the book of Jeremiah and um, we're, we're reading the book of Jeremiah having come from um, Kings and then before Kings, first and second Samuel and then before that the book of Joshua so we've, we've been doing a sweep through Israel's history this particular talk the first one um, is on the very intriguing phrase <coughs> right at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah the first fruits of his harvest um, now before we get into that let me lay out um, the problems I think we have with a lot of the gospel um, and a really significant problem we have is the problem of inclusion and exclusion um, in, in other words the flip side of the gospel story about salvation and being included in the work of God seems to be well you or lots of people are therefore excluded so we have a dualism set up not deliberately but it's 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 heavily implied that this gospel is creating a duality in the camp out of the camp and um, that that's really problematic I think this issue dogs the whole story of salvation it's 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 the dark side of uh, of the promise that god will save his people from from their sins um and you know this uh, this issue starkly begins in the old testament where the lord chose israel or the nation of israel apparently in preference to and to the exclusion of other nations um, so the inclusion-exclusion problem, um, I mean, it was brilliantly explored in a book recently um, called the, I think it was called, what was it? Yeah, The Tyranny of Merit by a man called Michael Sandel, S-A-N-D-E-L. Um, the subtitle of the book is What's Become of the Common Good? <clears throat> uh, it 
it'd be too too much of a diversion for me to go into that book now. And as a matter of fact, I, I might give a separate little podcast on it. Because to my surprise, Sandal, who's a Harvard professor, does what I think is an illuminating and well-informed diagnosis of the influence of evangelical Christianity on the American psyche to create, he doesn't quite use the phrase inclusion-exclusion, but he may as well, um, to create this sense of entitlement, this sense of um, a meritocracy and its devastating um, social impacts. So it's a big issue. I think it's a big issue for all of us. Um, I, I sort of see the inclusion-exclusion problem as breaking down into three um, specific problems. So one is the mindset it creates or seems to invite of entitlement. And the phrase, quote-unquote, God is on our side is probably a good encapsulation of that entitlement mindset. Um, we all... I think feel guilty about that and know that's wrong. We don't want that to be the case, but it's very much there. And I mean, I've sat in church services recently where the theme has been community and belonging and being in the church and participating. And whilst it's all well-intentioned, I, I just can't help but squirm as I listen, um, imagining, um, uh, I suppose it's because I, I smell uh, an unintended entitlement mindset. The second problem, and it's a really big one, I think, in the modern world is what I'd call the rhetorical problem, which is simply this, that whilst Christians might like to downplay the inclusion-exclusion um, implications of this message, uh, those who are quote-unquote non-Christians really get it loud and clear, probably more loud and more clear than we do. A dear, dear friend of ours, um, um, of my, uh, both of Anne and mine, but particularly Anne, with whom Anne frequently uh, dialogues, hates the phrase non-believer, non-Christian. She, she gets it. You're, t you're, 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 you're encapsulating me as a non um, it, it, if you put yourself in their shoes, it's absolutely an awful um, slight on someone. So that's it. There's a real kind of rhetorical problem. And there's a third problem, actually, which, which uh, um, we, we get in, in, in a sense of the book of Jer the situation Jeremiah faced. And that is, I think, precariousness because, well, what if I'm included today? But what if I slide away? How do I know I'm included? Um, why could I not become excluded? And there are plenty of passages in the Bible that seem to raise that possibility of a future exclusion. So that's, that's a real, real issue. Now, um, certainly I um, and others in gospel conversation, not everybody by any means, but have raised the alternative view of what's typically called universal salvation. I'm not going into that now per se. Um, I would remind any listener that I actually don't like that phrase for a variety of reasons. If you were to ask me what I am intrigued by, what I probably believe, it's better called cosmic 
redemption. Um, now, if you then take a cosmic redemption view, you've got other problems. I think problems are real issues. For those of us intrigued by this, we have to work through. And probably um, the most obvious is, well, so what? Is this just some kind of get out of jail free card? <laughs> um, and certainly critics of universal salvation um, stigmatize it that way. It's just, a, it's, it's, your message is nobody need worry, nobody need be responsible, nobody need respond, nobody need be converted. It's, it's just um, an explanation that everybody's gonna quote unquote go to heaven. So that's an issue. Um, and then sort of, sort of associated with that, there is an issue to do with the rhetorical declaration. I mean, if, if you're making an argument to people about the truth of something, you need to have a claim. You need to move people to some point of decision. You can do that in a law court. You do that when you evangelize. And the question is, well, if the actual declaration is all will be saved, quote unquote, or the whole cosmos will be redeemed, is how, <coughs> how, how I would put it. By the way, forgive me, my voice is a bit hoarse today because I've got a, a bit of a call. Um, well, there doesn't appear to be any call to action in that. It's just an explanation, not an argument. So th these were issues that um, were floating around in our mind when we began reading Jeremiah. Of course, you know, if you're going to read one book in the Old Testament where you're pretty sure to get um, doom and gloom and, you know, glass half empty and judgment, it's going to be Jeremiah. You know, he's, he's the sort of weeping prophet, um, uh, dark side of the story guy, apparently, apparently. Um, well, um, of course, in reading Jeremiah, um, because we we're reading it out of the book of Kings, which is the only way to read Jeremiah. You've got to locate the prophets inside the historical context. And um, whilst I'm not a historian, I'm a literary person, um, you know, the, there's plenty of very able, um, both commentaries and historical texts that help you do that. And, and um, um, But if you really want to read history, you've got to get inside you know, the situation and that's what that's what Anne and I have been doing. We've sort of been trying to lay aside our um, our viewpoint reading retrospectively and position ourselves there. And it's most useful to view Jeremiah as working within the shadow, uh, the working within the rise and fall of Josiah's reforms. Um, that's when he talked. So, just recalling it simply, um, the northern ten tribes had long ago been decimated uh, by the Assyrians. Um, Josiah was almost the last gasp. Um, he, he he was the guy the the the, the guy who um, recovered. Um, not just the temple, but the law, you know, reinstituted a vast Passover. Um, his reforms were really the high point of obedience. 
in the sad story of Kings. And to the extent that the writer of Kings in 2 Kings 23, 25 says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul. So he's even, in a sense, placed above David. But apparently this was actually not enough. The reforms were too superficial, didn't penetrate deep enough uh, into the soul of the nation. And once he died, his, you know, the, the next four kings were, I think they were all his children or pretty close to it. Um, they quickly turned back to idolatry and very importantly, social injustice um, of, the, of the surrounding tribes. So this was the context within which Jeremiah prophesied. It wasn't just all bad, uh, as it would have been in Manasseh's time. It was Josiah, high hopes, dashed. So um, essentially, uh, Jeremiah's message is uh, Josiah's reforms were not good enough. Doom will come to the nation. And it's a bit tricky reading Jeremiah because um, what was happening is that uh, Judah, or Israel, was being surrounded by Babylonian incursions, which came in a few waves. And there was a very strong prophetic voice in, in Israel that was saying what you'd kind of expect, which is God's on our side, uh, he will defeat the Babylonians and um, restore the land, keep the land for us. Now you'd think, well, yeah, these people are in the, you know, they're following Moses' tradition. They're declaring um, that the, the law given to Moses was the truth and we've got the truth and we'll be defended on account of it. However, Jeremiah says the opposite to that. He says, no, no, God's with the Babylonians. He's, you people are false prophets giving false hope. He's actually gonna wipe out the inhabitation of the land by Israel. Um, so it's a tricky message. You've got to put yourself in that position. His opponents were not um, uh, outright pagan worshippers. Um, the, clearly the, the sort of um, falseness of their position was, was rather subtle. Um, and so if Jeremiah then was promising doom, is that like the end? This, is this the end of the nation of Israel? Um, well, no, it's not the end. And if you actually begin to read carefully, his prophetic message begins in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is his calling. Chapter 2, which is, uh, <coughs> which is the one I want to focus on, is just a, a verse there right at the beginning. So right at the very headwaters of all this diagnosis of social injustice and, and consequent judgment that Jeremiah's going to get into is this particular verse. This is how it begins. Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. I'll read from verse 1. Say, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Now, that's um, 
really interesting because what uh, follows is a extended expose of the heart of God in relation to Israel and in relation to their identity. And it begins by going back to God's purpose in electing them in the first place. So Jeremiah recalls their origin um, and their initial encounter with the Lord. It's the language of love, love for the bride. And in doing so, he names their status. This phrase, you are the first fruits of my harvest. Importantly, in terms not of their qualities, nor any benefits they can expect, but of God's purpose on the earth in electing them. They are, quote, the first fruits of his harvest. And this description is significant for them and for us. Because they're not his harvest. They're the precursor to his harvest. They are the beginning of his harvest. And by definition, if they're the first fruits, the harvest must extend beyond them to all nations. So what this phrase does is it makes um, Israel and, and their election not an end in itself. It makes them a means to a broader end. The end, quote unquote, is a broad harvest and the means is Israel's role as the first fruits of that harvest. And I would argue um, we continue that calling of being the first fruits of his harvest. It's a phrase marvelously picked up in James chapter one, among other places. So this phrase of first fruits is a really, really evocative phrase. Um, it suggests that they are the harbinger of a coming reality. They are foretaste of a much broader flourishing. And this is this phrase, first fruits, is not so much a status as a task. <laughs> you know, if you're the first fruits, your job is to bring forward the harvest, as it were. That's the implication. The, the, the task of first fruits is to understand and communicate the harvest the broader purpose and ways of God. Um, and I think this calling explains the significance of their slippage, of their disobedience, because, you know, you've just got to step right back and say, they are Israel, Moses, the major vessel on, of God, on the planet of God's truth. They're the only nation on the planet to have a vision of, a, of monotheism. They're the only nation on the planet to have a vision of God as creator. The only nation on the planet to believe that the earth is created by God and that the only nation on the planet who believes this God is personal and on their side. They're the only nation on the planet to believe man is made in God's image. All men and women are made in God's image. Extraordinary custodians of what 
is a wondrously liberating truth for humanity in contrast to the religious cultic practices around them that might have had bits of that truth, but by and large, they, that truth was subordinated to a kind of a cosmology and religion and ritual that certainly um, had the social impact of, of serving despots and tyrants. So what if this vessel um, dilutes the message, starts to mix it up with uh, the cultic practices and beliefs around about them? And if they continue to portray that truth, they start mixing it up with the confused lower horizons of paganism, then truth on the earth would decay forever. And that's what had happened. You know, what had happened was, if you read carefully, that Josiah's reforms failed to eradicate was this syncretic mindset that was sort of half Moses, half Baal. Um, and therefore, any purpose God had in creation would be lost and the kingdom of the earth would be ceded to the dark enemies of God. And importantly, God had no plan B. He wasn't going to say, okay, I'll give up on you. I'll try Moab. I'll try Egypt. I'll try Persia, someone else. So if the first fruits of Israel failed, then there'd be no incarnation down the track. There wouldn't be that social womb of Israel that was ready to receive the eventual most climactic first fruits of his only son. So Israel was not a tribal club with a sense of entitlement. Um, it was not a sect or a group that was included so that all others would be excluded, which got all the promises for itself to the exclusion of others. If you think about the phrase, God is on our side, God is not on your side, they're both wrong. They're both wrong because they centralize in an egocentric way us. The question is, What's God doing? Which is really what Jeremiah was interested in doing. Um, Israel's calling was to be a conduit of that bigger picture, those promises to include others. And this was God's purpose, even if it wasn't Israel's purpose. Um, so I think from that headwaters, the whole book of Jeremiah flows. Um, and I think that paradigm of first fruits of harvest changes everything that lens changes everything so look so what for us i think it's really powerful <clears throat> i think it just takes us right out of the included excluded picture because included and excluded is a binary paradigm that i'm putting everybody on the planet either included or excluded so that's a a a, a, a sort of bipolar opposition first fruits and harvest is very different. It says, well, some people on the planet are first fruits and the rest of the planet is gonna share in that because they're the eventual harvest. It doesn't preclude the fact that there are some people on the planet who are first fruits who are quote unquote elect, tasked to do. It doesn't suggest that everyone on the planet's got the same knowledge of God. It does suggest everyone on the planet's got the same end of a harvest. So for us, I think it's got a few really uh, fruitful um, takeouts. The first one is that our message, the gospel message needs to be primarily apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. It's a, unfortunately, more often than not, a sort of a rescue message at the moment. But 
we should frame the gospel as, a, as an apocalyptic message with an apocalyptic mission. And that means that the quote-unquote end of all things should be the focal point of our message. So therefore, it's a visionary message. It's a visionary declaration. It's, it's, it's a declaration of hope. Um, it's, it is an inclusive message. It does say all are included, but that inclusion has, it cuts two ways. All are accountable, all are responsible. Um, and that very metaphor of harvest uh, is significant because it implies that our lives are here to create fruit, to create harvest. And God wants a return on our lives. And that return is an ethical return, a social return, a spiritual return, an environmental return. I mean, it, it, it's a declaration with weight behind it. It's a declaration with responsibility. So I think that's a really re nice reframing that the harvest and first fruits metaphor gives to the gospel. Um, <clears throat> The uh, second so what I thought of is that we face the same contest today that uh, Israel did, which is syncretism. That is diluting and accommodating this inconceivably bold, ambitious, optimistic vision to the spirit of our times. It could be nihilism, it could be pessimism. You know, we, we don't, the danger of syncretism is not, ah, I become an atheist. The danger of syncretism is I dilute. I, I don't allow my mind to be expanded. I don't allow my mind to be shocked, surprised in wonder. Um, you know, as an example of a declaration that's very contestable, you'd say, well, we believe love is the basis of all the created order. Not contest, not contest. Um, you know, survival of the fittest is the modern version of the pagan mythology that the universe was created out of contest. We say no, well, it was created out of love. So that's an example of where there's a real contest of ideas around the declaration of this harvest. And uh, I think finally uh, that you know, if I say to myself, if we're an evangelist and we're from a viewpoint of cosmic redemption wanting to declare what, what's the declaration what's the decision i think the decision is christ is to be declared to be explained to be laid out as lord of the kingdom as the king the great lord's prayer thy kingdom come so i think the message is not so much take jesus as your savior yeah, that's true but the predominant message is acknowledge him as lord of all so this was uh, you know, some of the ways we found this little phrase, um, first fruits of his harvest, very productive. I think it's productive because it's a metaphor, it's a paradigm, not just a, it's not just a casual phrase, and it's a paradigm that's uh, really useful uh, to do what good paradigms do, which is to enlarge and reframe our thinking. So, um, enjoy, yeah, God, God bless you on, on these thoughts. I hope they bless you as they did uh, Anne and I.